This month's episode is dedicated to the memory of Michael Green. Our thoughts and prayers go out to the family and friends. Rest in peace. He's not a shark. He's not a fish. He's not an avalanche. He was a man, John Tenta. Known inside the ring as one of the most fearsome and terrifying forces in professional wrestling, to this day there are many stories, fables, truths, and lies told about him. Today I strive to shed some light on the fact and dispel the fiction of one of professional wrestling's greats. This is Grappling with Canada, and today we cover Earthquake John Tenta. Hello everyone, and... To Grappling with Canada, as usual, I'm your host, The Taxman, and I want to say a very special thank you to everyone who checked out our last month's episode covering the incredible life and career of Billy Two Rivers. Uh, I know I've said this, I think, three episodes in a row, but once again, we smashed a download and listen record, so once again, thank you everybody for checking out that incredible interview that I had with Mr. Two Rivers. It's still something that sticks with me. And like I said in last month's episode, it's something that's going to stick with me for a very long time. So if you haven't listened to that episode, as well as the other ones in the archives, I very highly suggest that you go back and check those out. Uh, we've done incredible episodes covering the lives and careers of Stu Hart, Dino Bravo, Gail Kim, obviously the aforementioned Village Rivers, and another BC wrestling legend, which ties into today's episode, Gene Kaniski. So once again, go back in the archives and uh, give those a listen to wherever you find, trade, steal, sell, barter, whatever your favorite podcasts, whether that be uh, on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, I suppose, uh, Spotify, Stitcher, uh, Google Podcasts, like I said, wherever you find your favorite podcasts, where you can find the archives and obviously where you found this program today. Now, I'm very excited to be bringing this one to you guys today as we cover the life and career of Earthquake John Tenta. Now, this episode is going to be a little bit different than some of the other ones that we've done in the past. Uh, this one is going to be very much focusing on aspects of his life and career that have gone not necessarily unreported, but we're going to say misreported throughout history. So I'm very excited to be bringing all of these uh, facts and all of this information to you guys. Once again, I want to make mention that you can find us on the new Facebook groups. Uh, Facebook, you just have to use that wonderful Facebook search bar. Uh, type in Grappling with Canada. Come join the Facebook group. You can also find us now on Instagram, Grappling with Canada, on Twitter as well. Uh, either use that wonderful search bar, Grappling with Canada, or search directly at 6 underscore podcast as well on youtube youtube.com slash c slash six-sided podcast and as i've mentioned before that's the holdover from the previous podcast that i used to run uh years ago but anyways can't change it so i'm kind of stuck with it so anyways youtube.com slash c slash six-sided podcast and want to make mention as well uh, there were issues we'll say with uh and that i didn't really know about when i started the patreon group so that one is no more so no more patreon or patron but even better than that if you want to support the show which i would very much appreciate it if you did uh buymeacoffee.com 
slash grappling is where you can find us. I'll also have links in the show notes as well as on Twitter. Once again, at six underscore podcast. This one is not something where you have to create a profile and all that headaches that were associated with Patreon. Once again, I wasn't aware that Patreon was like that, and I apologize to everybody for not doing my due diligence. But uh, once again, uh, buymeacoffee.com slash grappling is where you can find us. Uh, go ahead and buy me a beer or coffee, if you will. Uh, but also, as a aside to that, you can be a tag team champion of the podcast for $5 a month, or I think it's there's a prorated or a discounted rate, I should say, uh, $50 for an entire year if you want to support the program. And what you get for that is you get the early heads up of who the next month's show spotlight is going to be on, which then allows you to ask some questions or have some information uh, specifically brought up on the program uh, that you would like to hear personally. So once again, uh, buymeacoffee.com slash grappling is where hopefully uh, you'll be so inclined to throw a little kickback, if you will, to the show. Uh, once again, this program is all researched, produced, programmed. Everything is all done by myself. So any any support is greatly appreciated from you guys. And honestly, the biggest amount of support that I've been getting is the amount of listenership and the amount of sharing that I've been getting from everybody. So once again, thank you for all that. Thank you so much, everybody, for a ton of five-star reviews that we've been seeing on various platforms, whether it's on iTunes. I see there's a few new five-star reviews on there. Unfortunately, there was nothing written, so I can't uh, give anybody shout-outs or read any of them on air. Uh, once again, we're also, you can find us on Good Pods. That's a brand new, um, we'll say conglomerate, if you will, of uh, podcasting uh platforms and it's kind of like an aggregate program but anyways uh we have a ton of five-star reviews on there as well so once again want to thank everybody for leaving us five-star review uh once again if you actually leave a written review then i'm more than happy to read those out on the shows and give you guys a shout out so like i said today's episode is going to be a little bit of a departure than what we've been doing so i'm very excited nonetheless to be getting into it and uh we're going to kick all of that off uh, with a little John Tenta flavor, if you will. So please enjoy this interview segment involving John Tenta when he was performing as Earthquake in the WWF. And on the other side, we are going to kick this thing off. You know, Hulk Hogan, last time you faced a big earthquake, baby, it was just a little case of hit and run. But this time, baby, you're in a lot of trouble because you see, you signed for a stretcher match with the earthquake. Nobody beats the earthquake in a stretcher match. This match is going to continue on till one man cannot continue anymore. He's carted out on a stretcher. Never to return again, baby. Hogan, you're looking at the man in the WWF who has the most experience in stretcher matches. All of my matches are stretcher matches. All of my opponents go out on a stretcher. You yourself have not been excluded. You have experience because you felt the stretcher. Now, you're going out on the stretcher once and for all, and that's a promise from the quake. You are going to fail all of the earthquakes that I've been keeping inside. You and Hulkamania are finished in this match. You and Hulkamania are going out on a stretcher. John Tenta was born in Surrey, British Columbia. Named after his father, he was a very large baby wearing 11 pounds, 3 ounces at birth. 
He was inspired by professional wrestlers Gene Kaniski and Don Leo Jonathan. He decided to pursue wrestling at the age of six. He learned freestyle wrestling at North Surrey Secondary, becoming Canadian Junior Champion in 1981. Now, shortly after his 18th birthday, he finished 6th in the Super Heavyweight category at the World Junior Wrestling Championships in Vancouver. He also won an athletic scholarship to Louisiana State University, where he competed in the NCAA-level collegiate wrestling. At LSU, he was named Big John Tenta, lettering on the Tiger varsity wrestling team and participating on the football team. LSU dropped his varsity wrestling in 1985, forcing John to choose a new sport, which he then chose football. Uh, John walked onto the LSU football team where he played in some junior varsity games as a defenseman lineman. He was known as a quiet giant while employed as a bouncer at an LSU college bar in the Bengal. And he also played rugby union for the LSU Rugby Club. Now, after his college career, this is where his life really starts to take a turn. Uh, he decides at that point that he wants to pursue a career in sumo wrestling. And this really changes the whole, we'll say, landscape of his career and the trajectory of what he was going to do in life. Now, to get into a little bit of that, there's a tremendous article on SlamWrestling.net that was kind of lost in the shuffle, we'll say, throughout the years. So I'm going to be referencing quite a bit of that interview. Uh, once again, SlamWrestling.net is where you can find this one. I, the author of this article was Dorothy Irwin. And like I said, this was actually written or interviewed, I should say, to term it better, in 1988. But like I said, got lost in the shuffle. It only did surface uh, in 2013. So well after the unfortunate and early passing of John Tenta, but tremendous article regardless. And I'm going to uh, quote a little bit of that article here. So John talked about how his career in sumo began. Uh, how he was found at an international tournament in Chicago. Uh, the Japanese were very anxious to have him in sumo, and they courted him heavily. Uh, negotiations were completed with great ceremony in Surrey, and then Tenta was whisked away to Japan. He was met by a large delegation, led by his promoter, referred to as the stable master in sumo circles. Other sumo wrestlers respectfully carried his bags as he was led away to a Japanese restaurant. Tenta said that he sat on the floor for hours listening to people speaking a language he didn't understand and eating food that he had never seen or eaten in his entire life, and that he really didn't care for it. Uh, next came the Japanese bath. Tenta was used to taking showers with other athletes, but having someone else soap you down made him feel that he was being treated like an infant. He's quoted in the article as saying that it was going to take a bit of getting used to, he recalled. I realized that I'd have to be very open-minded and patient towards the things that made up their way of life. I had to learn everything at once. Now, John would detail really what his life was like during his sumo wrestling training. He'd wake up at 5 a.m. when it was still pitch black outside to start his grueling training in the unheated sumo wrestling gym called The Stable. The practice ring was a standard 15-foot circle edged with twisted straw rope. The surface was hard. Packed clay was covered with sand. To win a match, a wrestler had to push his opponent out of the ring and have some part of the opponent's body touch the floor. At 5.30, he would work out with a partner. 
At 6.30, it was time for pushing exercises against the outstretched arms of an opponent. At 7.30, he would work with the stable master, shuffling low around the ring and rolling on the floor. At 8 o'clock, it was arm exercises, followed by training within his division at 8.30. At 9.30, the other divisions would train while Tenta would watch with his arms folded. At 10.30, he would do leg exercises, calisthenics, and stretching exercises. This time was also allotted for practicing sumo slogans and songs. At 11 o'clock, the higher division wrestlers would go for a bath, while the lower division wrestlers would act as their servants or sweep the floors. The duties as a servant included washing the senior wrestler, getting his clothes ready, assist the wrestler out of the tub and to dry him, dress him, take him to lunch, fill his plate and glass, take him to have his hair done, and then take him to his room. Basically, the young boys, or the, the trainees, if you will, were glorified servants, but that's a trade-off for being taught the ways of sumo. Afterwards, it was time for the lower-ranked wrestlers to bathe and eat lunch. The afternoons were filled with classroom study and tournaments, while evenings consisted of many public relations events, including dinners and parties. As Tenta went through the divisions, he won 24 straight matches, which was a record for a foreigner. Tenta was rising quickly through the divisions, and every minute of his day was accounted for. One of the things that bothered him the most was getting only two meals a day, which consisted mostly of stew, pork or chicken, rice and vegetables. Now, John did enjoy his time as a sumo wrestler doing the wrestling itself, but some of the training methods are what he didn't agree with and didn't understand. His stable master always wanted him to attack with his head, and John didn't like that idea. To quote him from the article as well, he would say, I met a fair amount of prejudice. Here, I was a white boy beating up everybody. I was getting special treatment from the master. They knew I had a girlfriend, which he wasn't supposed to have because of his low rank. He was getting lots of media attention too. Lots of Japanese guys had left school at 14 years old and were my age and they were getting nowhere in sumo. So now you can see how it caused hard feelings. More and more, Tenta felt like his own personality was being erased. Not only that, they wanted to literally erase the tattoo on his arm. Now, if you've seen pictures of John Tenta, he has a very large, very noticeable tattoo on his arm. Uh, this is a big no-no in Japanese culture at that time. At that time, tattoos were really associated with the Yakuza, or other less-than-savory people, we'll say. So they wanted him to remove the tattoo to go further in the sumo tournaments. Uh, they would only allow him to compete to a certain level. Then if he wanted to go any further, they would make him remove it. So this, as you could say, uh, made John very uneasy. Uh, tournament times were also time for the big showing off the sumo wrestlers to the adoring public. Almost every night there were dinner parties that lasted until midnight or later. Yet the men still had to attend practice the next day at 5 a.m. There was a ton of pressure on Tenta to remain undefeated. Tenta would say that he would beg his stable master to let him rest. He felt that he was being displayed to the public as a, this great foreign sumo wrestler, but in reality he was losing sight of who he really was. To quote John from the article, he says, I felt as if I were on show and tell. I felt more like a clown or some kind of hostess. Then there was a matter of money. Tenta was working his way up through the ranks, but he didn't have any money of his own. 
He would get some money for winning championships, but it came in small amounts. Other wrestlers would give him money, but Tenta didn't like to take money from other people. If he had been injured and not be able to compete in the tournaments, he wouldn't have been getting any, given any money until he was well enough to compete again. In time, John would have made it up in the high ranks and he possibly would have become a multimillionaire, but he felt that it was too much of a gamble. He had seen guys retire from sumo after 10 years with no education or other skills and they were at a dead end. Tenta was preoccupied with these thoughts. He was confused and his state of mind was affecting his training. To quote John again from the article, he would say, I didn't see that I was in my best condition for the next tournament, he has said. I didn't see any break coming. I decided it was time to go. So just one day before he was supposed to go to a dinner party, Tenta walked away with just the clothes on his back and headed back to the only person he knew who spoke English, his girlfriend. Then he took a train to Tokyo and joined up with All Japan Wrestling. Now, this is where the story kind of gets divergent depending on who you talk to. Now, this is going to be a little bit confusing, I think. But if you bear with me and uh, and we kind of sort through the fact and fiction of what actually happened during those times, then I think that we can really start to paint a clearer picture of what happened uh, during John Tenta's time in sumo then his time after sumo and what it really meant to the Japanese, uh, both sumo wrestlers, the sumo community, and then the greater population. I want to reiterate just how impressive John's success was in sumo wrestling because once again, everybody talks about his WWF run with Hulk Hogan and that was obviously very successful because at that time Hulk Hogan was the name in professional wrestling. He was a movie star. He was a multimillionaire. You couldn't go anywhere in the world, essentially, professional wrestling or not. Everybody knew who Hulk Hogan was. Many people today still know who Hulk Hogan was. And he hasn't really stepped in a ring in a competitive basis since, oh, well... He did have a run in, in the 2010s, but he was severely beaten up by that time. But his major runs in the 80s and 90s, th those were well over 30 years ago at this point. So we're taking that into context. So currently, there are only three, and this is currently at the time of my research, which goes to uh, 2019, if I'm not mistaken. So there are three Yokozuna. They're the pinnacle at the top of all sumo. So of these three, uh, Yokozuna, the, the big, big dogs in sumo wrestling, uh, one started his career by going 6-1 and one in the junior division, 6-1 and one in the intermediate division, and 24-11 and 11 in the, in the Sadaname division. That's like the highest division. Uh, another one started his career going 5-2 and two in the junior, 24-11 in the middle, and 38 and 32 in the Sadaname division. And the third started his career going 8 and 6 in the junior division, 14 and 7 in the intermediate, and 26 and 16 in the Sadaname division. The quickest to get to the Makushito division. So, again, we're going to talk about these records, right? 
all of the first individuals went six and one, six and one, and eight and six in their beginning division, the John Uchiu division, John Okuchi division. Sorry, my mistake. So Tenta starts his career by going seven and zero in the John Okuchi division. He goes again a perfect seven and zero in the next division and a perfect seven and zero in the Sadaname division. So he made it to the highest or the next highest division without ever losing a match. To date, only five other Rikishi have ever had such an incredible start to their sumo career that immediately placed John Tenta into the sumo record books. His success, paired with being a rare Caucasian Rikishi, made him an instant fan favorite. He was bestowed the nickname The Canadian Comment, and he was featured in some of the biggest sumo wrestling magazines including the cover of Sumo World in May of 1986. So there are a few known controversies, and once again I alluded to a few of these in the beginning of the program, that are documented and are verified. So these ones I'm going to get into, and then I'll also discuss the ones that aren't documented and verified and are just rumor, conjecture, and innuendo. So it is diff- it's going to be difficult, I think, to kind of hear them all at once, but I'm going to do my very best to kind of separate fact from fiction. So we had talked about earlier that uh, he was very famous in the stable being that he was, you know, a Caucasian guy from Canada making a tremendous name for himself. And he was getting preferential treatment from the other uh, stable mates and the higher ups. There's one newspaper that had reported that 10 Rikishi, uh, that's people equal to him, uh, left, left the stable in protest of John Tenta's favorable treatment. John would say that uh, in regards to his experience in the stable, uh, he was quoted as saying, nothing he has ever, nothing I'd ever done, not football, not college wrestling, compares with the kind of physical abuse that you inflict on your body in sumo. There's no let up, not even when you're injured or sick. It was very hard for me to accept. Also, like I said, John Tenter was expected to have his tattoo removed. So John went as far as to meet with the Canadian doctor about getting it removed. The doctor claimed that the recovery time from the laser surgery would take six weeks, but Tenter knew that he would not be allowed to take this amount of time off. And on a side to that, Tenter also found out that the doctor had never removed a tattoo like that before. So again, to reiterate, he's a superstar moving up the ranks in sumo. He gets to a certain point, they want him to remove the tattoo, so that's one roadblock. Second roadblock is he's feeling ostracized because he's a star for all intents and purposes, and he's making other sumo wrestlers from Japan feel uh, uneasy about him being here. And now third is the physical emotional and mental abuse that his training is taking on him so you can see where he's starting to get a little homesick if you will the very last straw was Tenta's concerns over his future and this is again something that I talked about previously but we're going to get into it a little bit deeper here a lower ranked sumo wrestlers are provided food and board but they aren't given much of a salary instead the real money in sumo is almost entirely allocated to the top tier rikishi Tenta, in his own words, had seen Rikishi retire from sumo after a decade and find himself at a dead end. Regarding his final days, he would say that 
quote, I didn't see that it was in my best condition for the next tournament. I didn't see any break coming. I decided it was time to go. However, leaving Japan is not as easy as buying a simple plane ticket. Gento was the star pupil of his stable and he was providing extremely good returns on their investments. Now this quote comes from John Tenta's son and he would say, quote, he was making the stable a lot of money because people would bet against him and he kept cleaning up. Before one of his matches, he said he forgot something in the locker room and booked it to the nearest train with some clothes that he brought along. He hid out in a hotel room for two weeks until they negotiated his release from sumo and he flew back to Canada for a while. Now, afterwards, Tenta was heavily criticized by the Japanese sumo media. His stable master went on record as saying, I don't know what he's thinking about. I went to talk to him, but personally I'm disgusted with foreigners and won't take one again. Many newspaper articles and writers called him soft, cowardly, and difficult. One even speculated that Tenta had permanently damaged the Japanese-Canadian relations. It appeared that the doors to Japan were closed to Tenta forever. Now, while his return was doubtful, he would venture back to Japan to start his professional wrestling career only a year later. The audience still remembered him as a sumo standout. Now, this would be his time with All Japan Wrestling, which we're going to get into in a little bit here. But the fact that I wanted to kind of dispel a little bit here is what the media were reporting about him and what actually was happening about him. So, again, although John Tenta left Japan on bad terms and the media did a very, very good job of trying to bury him <laughs> to the local uh, to the local papers and everything like that. When he came back, the fans loved him immediately because they remembered how good he was. And the translation from sumo wrestlers to professional wrestling in Japan, there's still such a reverence for professional wrestling, obviously as well with sumo wrestling. So... It's not like he was going from sumo to vaudeville, for example. He was going from the very respected sumo wrestling to the equally as respected professional wrestling. So although the media did their best to try and bury him and ostracize him and and say that he was, you know, the root of Japanese-Canadian political issues, simply not the case. And he went back and he was a massive fan favorite. So... We're going to get into a lot of that in the next little bit here, but we're going to take a quick break. I'm going to play some audio. Now, this is from the CBC in 1986. So this is in regards to an interview where John is talking about his decision to leave uh, sumo wrestling and come back to Canada. So you can hear it from John Tenta himself. And on the other side, we're going to start to get into his career in professional wrestling. Joining us now from Surrey, BC, John Tanta. Welcome home, John. Thank you very much. I was expecting to see you with long hair. When did you get a cut? I got that cut, I guess, the day after I announced I was finished with sumo. You didn't waste any time. Uh, it was too long. I didn't like messing with it every day. Unless it's up in the top knot, it's hard to handle. What was it about the lifestyle of the sumo wrestler that you said, I've had enough, I don't want to take this anymore? There's a lot of demands and a lot of pressure put on you. Uh, I had to answer to guys that were much younger than me. 
I had to do anything that my senior wrestlers asked me. Can you give us an indication of the type of hours that you put in? How much training went into this sport? Well, during the tournament, I'd, you know, I'd get up every morning about 5.30, and I wouldn't, I wouldn't, uh, well, we'd have practice, and then we'd have lunch, and then if I had a match, I'd have to go to the stadium, look after a senior wrestler, then come back, uh, make sure, you know, look after him while he ate. So I wouldn't get rest, you know, until probably about 7.30 in the evening. I read somewhere that you were a little tired about having sand pushed up your nose and into your mouth. <laughs> well, I, I, I didn't really get too much of that. Uh, got hit a little bit with sticks and a little bit of kicking and punching, but uh, it was just a whole bunch of little things overall that worked into one big thing. Why did they put you through that kind of harsh training? Well, they, they're trying to get you to your top condition so that uh, you don't feel pain. Uh, if you're sick or injured, you practice anyway. Because during a tournament, if you have a match, you have a match and you have to be there. So they're just trying to get you mentally tough and physically tough. You know that some of the articles indicate that perhaps the Japanese thought you might be a little soft for giving up and, and quitting the sport at, the, at this time. Well, uh, some people criticized me, but a lot of the Japanese press was also on my side. The system isn't run, I don't feel is run very well. Uh, a lot of other people feel it's not run well. What was the good side of sumo? I mean, was there any good side of this sport for you? Well, uh, I, I don't regret going. I had a good time. I've become well-known in Japan. Uh, I enjoyed myself. And now it's opened doors for other opportunities. Well, what will you be doing? What does a retired sumo wrestler do? <laughs> well, this one plans on going into professional wrestling back in Japan. You're going back to Japan? Yes, pr uh, hopefully very soon. Will you become the Hulk Hogan of Tokyo? <laughs> well, before I become the Hulk Hogan of Tokyo, I have to lose my sumo body and turn into a wrestling body, lose a little weight. How much weight have you lost since you, you quit training? Uh, well, I, I've lost 60 pounds since I went over to Japan. How much weight will you have to lose to get back into the type of wrestling that you want to do when you get back to Japan? I'd like to get down to about 300 40 pounds, I guess, 330, go down from there. You know, you talked about being homesick for Canada. What were some of the things that you missed about home when you were living in Japan? I think freedom was a big thing. Uh, I wasn't allowed to do anything I wanted when I wanted. Uh, sumo wrestlers are always in the public eye, so you have to be very careful of scandals and things like that. What was the first thing that you had when you got back to Canada that you hadn't had in a long time? <laughs> I guess the first thing I had was my mother's roast beef dinner, I guess. And did it hit the spot? Yeah, I enjoyed it. Well, welcome back once again. And how long will it be before you leave for Japan? I may be leaving as early as the 21st. Okay, thanks for being with us. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye now. Now, as we start to go into his run with All Japan Wrestling, I'm going to quote again heavily from the Slam 
wrestling.net article because John Tenta never did a pile of shoot interviews. And for those who are not familiar with professional wrestling, shoot interviews are essentially when a wrestler is going on the record about their exploits in professional wrestling, but they're dropping the notion of their character or kayfabe, if you will. That's a wrestling term. So they're giving you the behind-the-scenes look, if you will. They're giving you the director's cuts, the producer's notes, if you will, about their life, career, and their exploits in professional wrestling. Many wrestlers, once they retire, they do these interviews. Not, although some of them do them in a way to stay relevant, if you will. I know that's such a horrible term to use, but... We have to call a spade a spade sometimes, and that's what happens. But a great deal of them are done because they legitimately want to give the fans the perspective of, okay, this is who I was in the ring, this is who I actually am. Unfortunately, with the fact that John Tenta never did any interviews like this, once again, we lost him way too young. So really the only way to get into the mind of John Tenta is to literally go back and see the quotes that he had given which, again, are few and far between because he was not really a walking, talking quote machine and didn't do a pile of interviews. So, again, I'm going to lean heavily on this interview from SlimeWrestling.net to really give context about what was going through John Tenta's mind as he transitioned from sumo wrestling into the world of professional wrestling. So, quote from this article to quote John, the main difference between sumo and pro wrestling in Japan is that with pro wrestling, except the training and bouts, your time is your own. There are times you have to do what your boss says, but any job has that. Compared to any other job, it's pretty easy for me. Now, John was still training hard at that time. There were long sessions of weight lifting, running outdoors, and working out with other wrestlers. He would say, I don't have a special coach. I learned a lot from other wrestlers. It's like playing a chess game. Moves have to be planned well in advance. Now, training was hard to maintain when Tenta would come home to Canada twice a year. He would say that he would have a hard time <laughs> saying no to his mom's cooking, which would include fresh bread hot from the oven, pecan pie, and fruit cake made from the secret family recipe. Uh, he would say, quote, My ideal weight is 350 to 360 pounds. When I feel the pounds packing on, I go run training on the hills. Right now, my weight is about 390 pounds, so when I go back to Japan, I'll train and lose that weight again. It's funny, but in training for pro wrestling, we eat the same stuff as I did in sumo, but now I like it. This is, again, talking about the culture shock that he experienced when he first came into Japan. In the article, it mentions that Tenta would bring out a stack of Japanese magazines and leaf through them from front to back the way that they were printed. He stopped and points to the good and not so good shots. And he would say of that, I've had a lot of media coverage, mostly good. If the media don't like you, they print pretty bad pictures of you. Then he would go on to say, I was meeting all the top guys. In Japan, I'm getting some of the best training in the world. And Tenta would go on and describe the mark that sumo wrestling had left on him as a mature person. When I go to the ring, he explained, I don't do anything to do with sumo. I don't walk in wearing my kimono or do any of the ceremonies or anything. In the ring, I won't do a sumo taco. Instead, I'll do a football taco. 
he would uh, also comment that wrestling now is a lot harder on the body. There are many more dangerous moves and bigger falls. And he would recall a match in Canada where someone hit him over the head with a chair. And he would laugh and say that it's part of the business. Quote, you have to take what the other guy gives you. You've got to come back and give it right back to him. You just look at it as, you look at it as his technique. And then he discussed Japan a little bit more in depth as well. Quote, pro wrestling in Japan is the way I always imagined professional wrestling to be. Over there, as I wrestle as over there, I wrestle as a Japanese. Even when we travel around the country by bus, I travel with the Japanese, not the Americans. I'm very happy in Japan, and I have lots of fans. Their promoter, Giant Baba, and him get along really well. He was a real giant, six foot eight, two hundred pounds, and gets a ton of respect. He's going to get me to the top. Now, Tenderu received Rookie of the Year that year in All Japan and was well on his way to reaching that goal. He would also go on to quote, It really started when I was just little. I used to get up on Saturday mornings and watch cartoons, but after a couple hours, my dad would get up and change the channel to wrestling. I'd go to my room and read. One day I got mad about it and I stayed to see what my dad thought was so good. That's when I got hooked. I was the biggest guy in school and all the kids used to make fun of me. I didn't have anybody to play with, so I decided to train to be a wrestler. I didn't have any real equipment, so I used the wooden picnic table in the backyard for weightlifting. Then, when I was in grade 11, the wrestling coach asked me if I'd like to try out. I'm glad I did, because that's how I got to win the Canadian High School Championship in Calgary, Alberta in 1981. That led to a scholarship at Louisiana State University at Baton Rouge. I've had some setbacks in my life. It hasn't all been winning. At one time, the university cut the program because it was too expensive, and that meant that I had to go and make a new life for myself somewhere else. That's when I decided to go to Japan. So the reporter then asked what Tenta does in his spare time when he's in Japan. Quote, Most evenings I would watch videos in my room and write letters. Sometimes I go to nightclubs, but not too often. There's some English TV and there's an armed forces radio and some English papers that are printed in Japan. English papers that are imported are at least one or two weeks old by the time we get them and cost about $5. But mostly I watch videos. All kinds. Comedy, westerns, dramas. But Alfred Hitchcock is really good. He scares you without all the blood and gore. My favorite star is James Stewart. I've rented every Alfred Hitchcock movie with James Stewart, James Stewart in it. He would talk about his living arrangements in Japan as well. One of my Japanese girlfriends has a very small apartment and it costs nearly half a million dollars to buy, explained Tenta. Big Western-style apartments can go for as much as a million dollars. And towards the end of the interview, uh, Tenta was asked about his career aspirations moving forward. <clears throat> Quote, Another advantage of being with Old Japan professional wrestling is that I get to meet top American wrestlers in the ring. So, when I do go to America, I'll be at the top. If I had tried to start in pro wrestling in America, I would have been just another big guy. Over in Japan, I went in, I did their sport, I became famous. I got respect. Right now I'm going back to Japan, and I plan to become more fluent in Japanese. I'll need that to get to the top. Maybe in 10 or 15 years I'll be the boss in Japan and all my dreams will come true. Now that's a fascinating look at kind of John's mindset as he was starting his professional wrestling journey. Uh, in all Japan. So I'm going to take another quick break. 
we're going to listen to another classic John Tenta promo, and then we're going to get into his All Japan Pro Wrestling run and uh, his career from there. Coliseum, baby, you better get ready for the mighty earthquake. Because you see, what happened to Hulkamania in Madison Square Garden, I think was a big shock to all the people there. Hulk Hogan, you better get yourself some earthquake insurance. Hogan, you said I struck too much with the earthquake. That is a big mistake. Only one man will walk out of the ring with his hand held high. That will be me. The other, the loser, you, Hulk Hogan, will be carried out on the stretcher. I don't care how many times I pin you. I don't care how many times you give up. That doesn't matter. All that matters, all that ends the match, is you and Hulkamania being carried out on the stretcher. Now, in 1987, John, like I said, had gone back to Japan to wrestle for All Japan Pro Wrestling. Uh, He was... A big star right from the very top, working with big names like John Baba, who you would hear that name in our Gene Kaniski episode. So once again, go back to the archives, listen to that Gene Kaniski episode. We go into tremendous detail about uh, the early career of John Baba and how he kind of became, or how he found his way to superstardom, if you will, uh, with working with uh, Gene Kaniski. But anyways, uh, John Tenda was working with John Baba, uh, with Tenru, and scoring high... Uh, victories over stars like uh, Kimura and Tigerjeet Singh. And most impressively, Tenta and Saruta would face the Legion of Doom in June of 1987. Now, for anybody who's not familiar with the Legion of Doom or the Road Warriors at that time, they were the tag team in professional wrestling. They came out to Iron Man by, or by uh, Ozzy Osbourne and used to get what people would call the Road Warrior pop. As in the building, the crowd would go absolutely bananas for these guys. And if you were working with them, then you were a big, big deal. So the fact that, you know, John Tenta comes in very early in his career working with all the top names and is working with the top tag team in the entire world, it just kind of shows you the place that he had carved out for himself in Japan, not only, but also the name recognition that he had garnered to this point in his career. So he had a, he had about an 18th month career with All Japan Wrestling, uh, like I said, teaming with or facing off against wrestlers such as Giant Bomba, Saruta, and the Great Kabuki. And then he started to gain the attention of the American Pro Wrestling promoters. Uh, he then went back to to Vancouver and spent some time working for promoter Al Tomko's NWA All-Star Wrestling. Once again, NWA All-Star Wrestling, you also get a big taste of that in the Gene Kaniskians episode. So once again, go back in the archives and check that one out uh, after this one. Uh, Interesting to note that he first competed as a babyface in All-Star Wrestling, but then turned heel and was managed by a gentleman, Jonathan Sayers. He ended up joining the WWF... or Sorry, he made his debut in November of 1989. Now, to go a little bit more into depth of his WWF debut and run, I'm going to have a couple of clips. Now, these were provided courtesy from Conrad Thompson and the Something to Wrestle With program. 
Uh, for anybody who doesn't know, Conrad Thompson uh, runs a various plethora of podcasting programs. Uh, I was in contact with him, and he very graciously allowed me to use clips from the Something to Wrestle program uh, towards this because they did a tremendous episode on Earthquake as well, but very much focusing on the WWF portion of his run, which is something that's really out there in the ether and there's not a whole lot that I could personally add to that story better than the way that they told it on their program so I'm going to play some audio from that program and on the other side we're going to come back and we're going to talk about his uh, departure and then going to world championship wrestling and the promo that started the intro to this program. If you're confused by it, you won't be uh, very shortly. So I'm, again, going to play some audio from Something to Wrestle, uh, courtesy of Conrad Thompson and Bruce Pritchard. And on the other side, we're going to go towards the tail end of his WWE, WWF run and into the WCW portion of his career. He comes into the company, the WWF, in March of 89 and wrestles two matches under his real name. And he joins full-time in September of uh, 89. And we'll talk about how all that comes to be. But who would have sort of been the scout or the liaison to put Tenta on you guys' radar in early 89? Well, um, I believe that they received some tapes and some promos and different things from John but I think it was Bret Hart originally who mentioned Tenta and Pat saw him, Pat and Vince saw him and brought him in for this tryout. And upon seeing his size and the way that he could move, Tenta could move for a big man and was very agile. And they put him in the ring for a tryout. Tenta killed it. We should mention March of 89, Hulkamania is still running wild in a big way. And for years and years, the formula had been a quote unquote heel factory, whether it's a Bam Bam Bigelow or King Kong Bundy or an Andre the Giant or a Nakeem or a big boss man. We need a big hulking individual, pardon the pun, to challenge Hulk Hogan and take that big boot and the leg drop and tend to checks all those boxes. Does he not? Yes, he does. He was a big, strong, menacing heel that. Hulk could overcome. Now, John Tenta made his WWF television debut on the November 11th, 1989 edition of WWF at the time, Superstars of Wrestling. Uh, he was planted in the audience as a normal spectator at the tapings held in Wheeling, West Virginia. Now, during this episode, there was an intermittent interview with Gene Okerlund where Dino Bravo challenged the Ultimate Warrior to a strength competition. In order to demonstrate, Bravo and his manager, Jimmy Hart, who you would have heard in the previous uh, Earthquake promos that I played in this episode already, uh, Jimmy Hart suggested that they pick a random audience member to come into the ring and sit on the backs of Bravo and the Ultimate Warrior as they did push-ups to see who could do the most. The Ultimate Warrior agreed, agreed, listen to me talk, and Hart, after pretending to look around the audience, centered his attention on the very large Tenta who was sitting in the audience in casual clothing and appearing surprised. Tenta came down to the ring, identified himself as John from West Virginia, and proceeded to sit on Bravo's back as he did a set of push-ups. During the Ultimate Warrior set, however, Tenta leapt down on the prone Ultimate Warrior using a seated senton that was adopted to be his signature move. 
Bravo and Tenta then beat up and unleashed multiple big splashes on the Prone Warrior. Both then celebrated as Tenta was inaugurated into the WWF as a heel with Jimmy Hart as his manager. Uh, you can hear more about this uh, series of events, if you will, in our Dino Bravo episode where we went into a little bit of detail on that aspect with uh, Pat LaPrade and Bertrand Bear. You can find that one in the archives as well. Attenta was pushed originally as a Canadian earthquake, and then by WrestleMania time, he was simply Earthquake, an unstoppable monster heel who often set his opponents out on stretchers after repeatedly hitting them with a sit-down splash. Once again, something that was mentioned in the previous Earthquake promos that you heard earlier on in this program. Now, the biggest matches that, or the most memorable matches that Earthquake had in the WWF was against Hulk Hogan, which heard a little bit of that again in the promos that I played previously. The feud exploded in May of 1990 when Earthquake snuck up on Hogan from behind during a segment of the Brother Love Show and repeatedly crushed Hogan's ribs with the aforementioned Earthquake splash. Eventually, Hogan recovered and gained revenge on Earthquake and defeated him in a series of matches across the country, starting with Hogan's count-out victory at SummerSlam 1990. Hogan and Earthquake were the final two participants in the 1991 Royal Rumble, with Hogan getting the victory. Back in the day, in this, you know, 85 to about 92, Hogan was the man in professional wrestling. But in order to be the man, he had to have multiple opponents who were built up over time to be monsters that uh, Hogan would have to overcome to retain his superstardom status. So you would have guys like Andre the Giant with the slam quote-unquote heard around the world, or monster heels, in this case, like Earthquake. When you were working with Hogan, you were working at the tippy-top of the card, and you were making, you were, you made it, essentially, in professional wrestling. Uh, back in that time, the territory systems were all done. Uh, AWA had folded up, the NWA had folded into WCW, slash they were kind of bought out by WCW, uh, which was owned at that time by Ted Turner. All the other various promotions across North America were either left in shambles or were closing shop. Uh, we even saw that up here in Canada with the close of such uh, such promotions as Stampede Wrestling, Maple Leaf Wrestling, and so on and so forth. Now, another memorable feud that Earthquake had was with Jake the Snake Roberts. Now, this one was a little bit controversial at the time, and I'm going to explain why. So, if, again, I understand that there are a lot of people who don't particularly know much about professional wrestling which is perfectly fine i'm very happy that you listen to the program anyways and i hope that you're learning a couple of things along the way but back in this time jake the snake roberts was known for bringing a very large python to the ring in a bag and it doesn't age well in today's day and age and there was a lot of problems with it back then uh with animal rights groups such as PETA. uh but Jake the Snake had his pet snake, Damien. Now, in this WWF Superstars of Wrestling match, Earthquake squashed, quote-unquote, Damien with his Earthquake splash. Earthquake had uh, Jake the Snake Roberts tied up in the ropes before going on his rampage. Uh, now, in reality, the bag was stuffed with a, quote-unquote, snake that was nothing more than pantyhose stuffed with hamburger, and a small motor to simulate the live snake effect. But when the match aired on WWF Superstars Wrestling, the footage of Earthquake actually landing on 
quote-unquote Damien, was interrupted with cutaway shots at the show's event center. Although the incident aired uninterrupted and uncensored during WWF primetime wrestling the following week, which obviously got the company quite a few angry phone calls and letters, if you will. Later, Earthquake participated in a skit on WWF primetime wrestling where he cooked quote-unquote quake burgers on a grill and served them to co-host Vince McMahon, Bobby the Brain Heaton, and Lord Alfred Hayes. Uh, later, <laughs> Earthquake revealed that the meat was ground from Damien's carcass. Uh, Bobby Heaton had eaten three or four of the burgers, and Hayes was furious about the meat. Earthquake mentioned where the animal uh, from which the meat was taken rhymed with quake, and Hayes said that they were snake burgers. Hayes got visibly sick and nearly threw up. Vince was so angry over this and knocked the chair to Earthquake's hands, which in turn knocked all the burgers onto the floor. We're going to hear a little bit about this later on. Uh, Roberts and Earthquake feuded throughout most of the spring and that summer. So those were really his two big personal one-on-one feuds in the WWF. He did have quite a memorable run as a tag team called the Natural Disasters that was formed with Typhoon, uh, who was one of Tenta's friends, actually, Fred Ottoman. Uh, He had previously been in the WWF under various other names. Uh, They were called Natural Disasters, managed by the aforementioned Jimmy Hart. Uh, They had a tag team title run uh, for a few months and had memorable feuds against teams like Money Inc., which was Ted DiBiase and IRS, uh, against the Legion of Doom, against the Beverly Brothers, and uh, and a few other teams. Uh, Tenta ended up leaving the WWF in January of 93 and went on back to Japan. Now, we're going to go a little bit more in depth into that in a second. But I wanted to dispel a little bit of the rumor about that departure. Now, it was rumored at the time that John Tenta was kind of promised another big singles run. Essentially, it boils down to John Tenta wasn't getting what he wanted, so he decided that the grass was greener on the other side and went back to Japan, where he had obviously a large name for himself, uh, where he would continue his career. He did come back to the WWF in 1994, so no bridges burned, no blood, you know, really uh, spilled, or no hard feelings or anything like that. But he did come back to the WWF. He did wrestle a few times um, as a singles competitor and then as a tag team competitor, and had somewhat of a sumo style feud with Yokozuna. Although that was short-lived and John Tenta was not very happy with uh, having to wrestle Sumo or WWF's quote-unquote version of Sumo, which ended up leading to an injury angle and in which time John Tenta left the WWF once again. Now from 94 to 96, John Tenta had spent some time in World Championship Wrestling. Again, he was kind of in the mid-card, never really at the tippy-top like he was in late uh, late 80s, uh, early 90s WWF, but he was used quite a bit. Uh, he had one uh, heavyweight title match against the ch- then-champion, the Giant, and this is where you would have heard the words mentioned at the start of this program. Uh, as a matter of fact, he is coming out right now. Please welcome, ladies and gentlemen, at well over 500 pounds, this is the Shark.
Oh, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Stop the music. Stop the music. That is the order of Shark. Take a look up in the ring. Big Bubba must have the remnants of your hair. That had to be Shark, one of the most disgusting, one of the most despicable, actually making me physically sick to my stomach. And only half a haircut. <laughs> it is a little different, I must say that. There's a reason. There's a reason why I'm not shaving the other half off. What is that, sir? Every morning I get up, I have to look in the mirror. I relive the embarrassment. I go get my mail. The neighbors are laughing. I relive the embarrassment. Well, Shark, I got to tell you this. You take a look at what Big Bubba did to you. That's Hold on a second. I'm not the shark. I'm not a fish. I'm not an avalanche. I'm a man. John Tenta. A 500-pound man. I'm going to hurt the man that did this to me. And then I'm going to shave the head of the giant. And he'll feel the embarrassment I felt. Needless to say, 94-96, not a very long run with WCW. Although the one memorable, I guess, thing that came out of it was John Tenta having half of his head shaved after a match with the formerly known uh, Big Boss Man. But again, it's not like he was used in a prominent position, and it's not like he was at the tippy-top of any part of the food chain. So unfortunately, at that time in the WCW... Uh, this was at a time when the NWO started getting hot. So you have very much this styles clash of uh, this new age um, kind of shades of gray hyper realism injected into professional wrestling with stables like the NWO, who, if you're not familiar with them, this was a group essentially formed by uh, Scott Hall, Kevin Nash, and Hulk Hogan, who in storyline were outcasts trying to take over WCW from the outside looking in. So they were started bringing in some other people in the group and started trying to run roughshod over WCW and essentially go to war with the mem or with the ownership or wrestlers or whoever with WCW. One of the most famous stables and storylines in professional wrestling history, and some could argue that it's the most important stable and one of the most important storylines in professional wrestling history. So you have that going on on one side of the WCW. Then on the other side is still kind of that, you know, early 90s cartoon wrestling with guys like The Shark, guys like The Dungeon of Doom, uh, or a stable like The Dungeon of Doom. It's just, it was such an odd time for professional wrestling, and that made a lot more hard on a guy like John Tenta who came in with a lot of steam came in with a big name but unfortunately was lost in the mix because he didn't really fit the the new age flow that they were going through and especially you know if you weren't a part of the NWO storyline unfortunately in WCW you were kind of shifted on the uh, on the wayside and that unfortunately is what happened with John Tenta now, John did make one more run with the WWF in 1998 to 1999. Uh, this was with the group called the Oddities, uh, where John Tenda was coming out to the ring under a mask wearing a Cartman shirt named Golga. And a lot of fans 
and myself included, I remember watching this back in the day, and I couldn't figure out who that guy was until there was one match where he threw a drop kick, and I was like, oh my god, it's it's Earthquake. And then you got to understand, this was 98. The internet was still not as prevalent as it is nowadays. Hell, we didn't have um, internet in my household until, oh god, maybe almost 2000. So definitely not like it is today. There's no Twitter, there's no Facebook, there's no nothing. If you weren't in the know, you didn't know. But once you started to see some of his moves and some of his machinations and such, you kind of knew it was him, and it was kind of neat to see him back. Although that character, although that character and that group, I should say, were were quite popular, very popular. Didn't have legs, it didn't have a lot of shelf life, and he ended up being out of there again in 1999. Uh, he did return to the WF, WWF with the Earthquake gimmick for a pair of appearances in 2001. In April, he competed in the 20-man gimmick battle royal match at WrestleMania 17 in a losing effort. And then in December, he defeated Tank Maloche in a dark match prior to the set of tapings for WWF SmackDown. Now, after leaving the WWF at that final time, uh, he ended up working the independent circuit... Uh, in Canada as well as England as well. He returned to All Japan in 2002 where he finished up his career in 2003. Now we're going to get into the later part of his life in a little bit. I'm going to play another clip from Something to Wrestle With. Now this is in relation to the Quake Burgers incident that I talked about. And it's one of those things where if you... I don't want to say if you found it funny, it was funny. At the time, it was very shocking. Nobody had ever seen anything like this on live television. I understand it wasn't live, it was taped. But still, at that time, nobody had ever seen anything like this. And now, unfortunately, in professional wrestling, you know, copycat syndrome happens, and we've seen multiple angles where, uh, unfortunately, various animals, quote-unquote, have been eaten by um, opposing forces will say opposing wrestlers or managers or stables or whatever so i'm not condoning it uh i'll be honest after seeing the uh the quake burgers segment once you've seen that you didn't really want to see anything kind of similar to that ever again unfortunately in professional wrestling when something works oh we got to do it again because you know it worked one time you, yeah whatever it's just it's one of those things i'm not condoning it i'm not saying that it's in good taste no pun intended or anything like that but it is one of the more memorable segments from early 90s uh wwf and uh conrad and bruce have a good chuckle going into it so i'm going to play this clip from something to wrestle and on the other side i'm going to go a little bit in depth into a very infamous incident that happened when Earthquake was in 1991. Uh, if you don't know, boy, you're in for a treat. If you do know, then we're gonna be then we're gonna be debunking some rumor and innuendo. So I'm gonna play this clip from Something to Wrestle once again about the Quake Burgers segment. And on the other side, we're getting into some uh, some more rumor and innuendo. From here, Earthquake gets in a brief feud with Jake the Snake. They have a match on superstars and the match ends with earthquake tying Roberts in the ropes and splashing the bag. It's allegedly contained Jake snake Damien 
of course it's been said the bag actually contained contained pantyhose stuffed with hamburger. <laughs> oh my God. I don't know why this tickles me these days. I feel like you guys would have just gotten destroyed by, by Peter or something like that. Tell we me. got destroyed by Peter then too. Okay. Tell me, tell me how this comes together. We're going to squish a snake and I think, uh, you called them quake burgers or something like that. We got to hear the whole story. Well, first of all, I think there was a feeling that because it's a snake, no one's really going to get that upset over squishing a snake. But then you realize, no, it's a living, breathing animal. You can't be doing anything to living, breathing animals. Like you can't even squish a spider or anything like that. Um, so the idea was we had to put up the disclaimer that no animals were harmed in this. And we, um, yeah, we, Damien wasn't actually in the bag. <gasps> I know. I just broke the hearts of so many people and squish. It's <laughs> so dumb. I mean, dude. The best part of it, though, is because when he hit the hit the bag and the bag, we wanted it to ooze, <laughs> right? So that you look like, oh my god, he's he squished this snake and the snake has exploded in there, right? <laughs> now, if you're a fan of Earthquake and John Tenta, I can already hear the gerbil wheels in your head going, squeak, squeak, squeak. I can't believe the taxman did not talk about the shoot match in 1991. Be or not, because I saved this part of the episode specifically to talk about that match, the circumstances surrounding it, and to dispel a lot of the quote-unquote rumor and innuendo surrounding it. So, for those who don't know, and for those who do but just need a refresher, in 1991, the Japanese wrestling promotion Super World of Sports arranged a series of co-produced wrestling shows with the WWF to be taking place in Japan. Now, due to his new villainous mystique and his sumo history, John Tenta found himself on the wrestling card. Uh, there was big names on that card as well. Fellow Canadian Bret Hart was on there, uh, Randy Savage was on there, Hulk Hogan was on there, and many others. It was during this tour that Tenta would have his final confrontation with the world of Japanese sumo. Now, we had talked a little bit previously about the differences between American professional wrestling and Japanese professional wrestling, but I do need to go into a little bit of that again now. It does bear repeating it. It's going to make sense as we kind of move in to, on this uh, portion of the program. Now, typically, Japanese wrestling promotions conduct themselves with very predictable storylines with these international monster characters. The monsters, like Earthquake, would defeat lower-tier wrestlers at the promotion toured across Japan. Uh, sometimes they would defeat the promotion star wrestlers through underhanded tactics, like cheating, uh, using foreign objects, having a manager interfere, etc., etc. In the final match of the tour, usually in Tokyo or another large city, the star would finally get their chance to defend the honor of the promotion as well as Japan. Without fail, the Japanese star would send the foreign monster crime back to their home country. This is something that we also talked about in the Gene Kaniski episode. Uh, the wonderful guest I had on that one was Steve Verrier, and we went very in-depth in Gene Kaniski's time in Japanese wrestling when he was trying to make 
Giant Baba, who in turn made John Tenta a big star in Japanese wrestling. So it's kind of interesting that a Canadian makes a Japanese star, who then in turn makes a Canadian star. Very interesting stuff. But I digress a little bit. Now there's a couple of things right off the bat that I want to clear up before we really get in depth about what happened with this incident, uh, the fallout, and really the truth behind it all. So first off, there's a, there was a lot of confusion and misreporting uh, after or in regards to John Tenta. So there were a ton of people before that this incident became widely known that Tenta never returned to Japan after his confrontation that we're going to talk about later or in a little bit, I should say. Uh, this is entirely false. Tenta would return to Japan several months after this incident that we're going to discuss, uh, where he would find himself in the main event of other star-studded SWS and WWF promotions. Uh, him and his tag team partner Typhoon, for example, would face the Legion of Doom in Japan in December of 1991, uh, illustrating that he was still seen as a primer figure in Japanese professional wrestling well after the confrontation. In addition, the last recorded matches that he ever had were in Japan, where he emerged victorious in seven of nine matches in a tour with New Japan Professional Wrestling. And today there's even a popular Japanese ska band named Big John Tenta. So now there's the other part of it of this notion that the media would downplay kind of his stardom, we'll say, in Japan. And again, I think that this goes back to a lot of them didn't like the way that he had left sumo wrestling. So there were a lot of papers reporting that, oh, because he never made it to the Makuchi division, that he you know, he was never that big of a star in sumo wrestling, which is completely false. Uh, the fact that he went, you know, 21 and 0, undefeated in sumo, they kind of downplay it like, oh, well, he didn't, who, who'd he ever beat? as a famous wrestling phrase goes, but the reality was he had a very star-studded and illustrious sumo career, although be it for uh, about a year. Uh, many people are also completely ignorant of his success in Japanese professional wrestling, like the, his successful run in All Japan. Again, this cannot be further from the truth, as Japanese crowds were always cheering for Tenta throughout his entire career. We saw that, again, a lot in his All Japan run. Lastly, there's a bunch of false claims about his showdown that we're going to talk about with the uh, individual, and I know you're waiting on bated breath to hear who it is. I'm going to tell you in just a second. Uh, but there's a couple of false claims, again, reported by the media. Once again, this is probably in regards how he left to, to or how he left the sumo wrestling industry. Uh, papers were reporting that he was uh, viciously booed by the audience during the match. Uh, that he ran back to Canada with his tail between his legs, that his reputation was ruined in Japan. Again, these are all just complete misrepresentations and misconceptions. And there's now video evidence that clearly shows the, the crowd on their feet. And for a Japanese crowd at the time, they were never really known for making a whole lot of noise during matches. They would sit out of respect for the participants, watch the match, and applaud throughout. But when this match was happening, the crowd was clearly on their feet chanting Tanta, Tanta, Tanta during that match and then the uh, subsequent matches that he had in Japan. 
Now, some of this could be in regards to the sumo career that he had. Some of it could be because a lot of the Japanese fans saw the American style as cartoonish, and you have Big John Tenta, now he's called Earthquake. So maybe it's a fact that a lot of the stalwarts and old school guys will say, we'll use that term loosely, didn't have a care for Earthquake because of his moniker and how he's being portrayed in WWF, considering the last time he was portrayed in All Japan, he was a big monster, a big star. Now he's kind of relegated to the quote-unquote mid-card of the WWF at the time. So what is this big incident that I keep talking to or talking about? Well, we're going to get into it. Now, this incident was known as the shoot fight against Koji Kateo. Now, in order to really set the stage for this, we need to understand who Koji Kateo was. So Koji Kateo was also a sumo wrestler in a previous life. He saw more success in the sport than Tenta as Koji reached the pinnacle of superstardom. He was a Yokozuma. However, Koji's grand success also had a ground downfall. After being promoted to Yokozuma, Koji saw a series of very mediocre performances. These disappointments appeared to frustrate him, which resulted in Koji assaulting one of the junior members of his sumo stable. When he was confronted by a stable master, allegedly he struck the stable master's wife before storming out. Now, shortly after the stable master submitted Koji's retirement papers to the sumo association, which they voted to accept without allowing Koji to speak on his behalf. So they just wanted him out of there. They were fed up with his antics, fed up with his mediocre matches and attitude, and this was kind of the last straw for him. Now, almost immediately, Koji turned to professional wrestling. He initially trained in America, but quickly came back to Japan to start his career with New Japan Professional Wrestling. His tenure with New Japan was short-lived as he was fired after directing racial slurs towards Japanese wrestling superstar Ricky Choshu, again somebody who we mentioned in previous episodes of Grappling with Canada. Despite his repeated blunders, Koji was hired by SWS and enjoyed notable success within the promotion. Now, when the SWS slash WWF super shows occurred, it was only logical for Tenta to fight Koji. Both were former sumo wrestlers and both were pushed as dominant competitors. On the first night, Tenta beat Koji in only 6 minutes and 10 seconds. This relatively short match time was likely due to the length of the card. Now, on this tour, almost every night there was 12 matches on the card. Now, the match times for these matches on the card would range anywhere from about 2.5 minutes to just over 15 minutes. While it was not known at the time, it's clear now that Koji felt slighted by the outcome of his match. Koji probably felt that he, the former Yokozuna, should not be losing to a former Rikishi that only reached the Makashita division. Even yet, he had previously been booked as a top-tier wrestler, obtaining win after win alongside Tenta's prior tag team partner, uh, Tenru. Losing in six minutes, essentially, was embarrassing for him, especially in front of, in front of the 36,000 fans that packed the Tokyo Dome. This pushed Koji to take matters into his own hands two nights later. Now, in this match, he was apparently booked to lose to Tenta again during the second SWS WWF Super Show, but he decided to fight against the outcome. Now, there is video of this match, and I've watched it many times, and it's, it's interesting to watch and is very uncomfortable to watch. And if I don't normally talk about matches on this program, but... If you have some time, 
Uh, you can find it on YouTube. John Tenta versus Koji Kateo. And uh, yeah, it's it's very interesting. And, and you can even see in the in the video, you could cut the tension with a knife. And it's very awkward and it's very... It's just, it seems very real, we'll say. Now, on that night, Tenta arrived to the ring and received intermittent cheers, whereas Koji's entrance was rushed with little fanfare. The match started normally enough, with each wrestler showing off their feats of strength. It vaguely appeared like Tenta was meant to win these feats, but Koji was fighting back more than he should have. Tenta gave a, a rough throw soon after, in which Koji responds by slipping out of the ring and throwing a table into the ropes. Once back inside the ring, it was clear that Koji had no interest in continuing the match as planned. He became unco uncooperative towards Tenta, which resulted in the crowd shouting, Tenta, 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 which you can see in the video as well. Again, something that was misre misreported in the local media coverage. So like most professional wrestling shoots, now for those who don't know, a shoot is a scheduled wrestling match that ends up turning into a real fight with either both or one of the participants essentially going into business for himself and attacking the other wrestler in the ring with or without their foreknowledge or agreeance, we'll say. Now, Tenta appeared to be unsure exactly what was happening at first. Uh, this may have been for two reasons. First, it's often difficult to tell whether someone is actually shooting. Professional wrestlers pride themselves on making scripted activities appear non-scripted. A fake punch looks a lot like a real punch in a professional wrestling ring, which causes a real punch to look like a fake punch. In any shoot, it only takes a few moments for the wrestler to decipher the intent of their opponent. Second, shoot wrestling was becoming more popular in Japan, and many variations were being incorporated into professional wrestling shows. Antonio Inoki, for example, who was J Japan's premier professional wrestler and booker, was a big fan of the shoot-style wrestling, and many other promotions, including SWS, tried to capitalize on that fad. Inoki himself participated in several shoot fights, both with informed, or both with the participation, if you will, of Muhammad Ali, and without the participation of the great Antonio as his opponents. Now, there's a few theories that are going on about this, um, that SWS had set up John Tenta, which there's a little bit of credence behind that. Uh, Koji Kateo could vanquish John Tenta in a real fight, showing the Japanese audience that the Japanese Rikishi was superior to the Canadian Rikishi. This could perhaps redeem the honor of Koji in the audience's eyes and once again solidify him as a truly tough fighter. But, in reality, that seems a little bit unlikely. Tenta was able to defuse the situation by refusing to back down to Koji. He stood valiantly in the ring, ready to defend against any swing that Koji would throw. Tenta began shouting to Koji, This is wrestling! And you can see him shouting and spinning these words at Koji in the match. Koji teased that he would eye-poke Tenta, essentially try and carve one of John Tenta's eyes out of the socket to which Tenta responded with a kick, which you can see in the video, and an eye-poke tease of his own. The crowd once again erupted in Tenta, Tenta. The showdown lasted several tense minutes with neither wrestler backing down. Finally, to, at the end of the match, and you can see this clear on the video as well, Koji kicks the referee in anger, uh, which knocks the referee right over because he was not expecting it. And, and Koji is a big man, and the referee is 
you know, petite, we'll say, to say it nicely. So the ref takes a bump and he gets out of the ring. Koji immediately leaves the ring, grabs a microphone and shouts to the crowd, wrestling is fake. Tenta could never beat me. Uh, Koji, or Tenta responded by celebrating in the ring. He put up both his arms up. And then after the match, I'm going to play this audio after he was interviewed by a Japanese reporter. And you could tell that he is fired up. He was pissed. And, uh, and says a couple of words in regards to Koji. And we kind of move on from there. So after this match, Koji left the professional wrestling business. Although he was accepted back into professional wrestling one year later. Uh, in Japan, it's quite often that Japanese wrestlers can have some misgivings and then be welcomed back into the promotions that they've offended, either as a make good or because, quite frankly, they're too big of a star not to have in that promotion. My sense of it is that he was accepted back as a make good. Uh, obviously, John went back to America and had a wildly successful uh, wrestling career, which we talked about uh, earlier in this episode, his obviously huge WWF run. So that kind of clears up a little bit of of what happened in that uh, quote unquote shoot wrestling match. Although, although it is interesting to note that five years after this confrontation, uh, Tenta would also wrestle Koji twice more, uh, showing that uh, you know it was water under the bridge; they could still work together. Which I think that's pretty uh, that's pretty spot on for John Tenta, and and seems to be really the uh, the mark of his character that he would, you know, kind of put water under the bridge and and business is business, and and he would help uh, work with this guy and help obviously the uh, wrestling industry in Japan uh, by going over there again. John Tenta, regardless of what some of the we'll say wrestling media at the time in Japan tried to say. Uh, he was a big star. He was well respected. He was well loved by the fans, and uh, and that is evident here. And it also speaks to John Tenda's character as just a, a really nice, a, a really nice guy, a really stand-up individual, and a gentleman, really. So, uh, again, can't say enough good things about John Tenta and the way that he handled the situation. But this is the big event that people still talk about to this day, and there is still rumor and innuendo about that event so hopefully i was able to dispel a little bit of that i still see it on twitter time and time again i see it on facebook sometimes people talk about the shoot match and what really happened well i think we've kind of covered in depth about what really happened with that match so now you know the story behind that and uh before we move on with the program I'm going to play the aforementioned audio that I had talked about when John Tenda was being interviewed by a Japanese ring announcer uh, right after the match. So I'm going to play this audio. And on the other side, I have a very special interview that I conducted with Vern Siebert. Now, Vern had a couple of runs in Vancouver along the time that uh, John Tenda was there. And he provides a little bit of backstory and a little bit of the professional wrestling atmosphere and what it was like coming from Vancouver and expanding or extending into the world of international professional wrestling. So first up, I'm going to play that again, audio clip of earthquake John Tenta after the interview with the Japanese wrestler, after the Koji Katawa match. 
and then my interview with uh, Vern Siebert, and I hope you will all enjoy. He's got some very great things to say, and, and he's a really, really nice guy to listen to. So I'm going to get to this uh, audio clip, and then my interview with Vern Siebert. Okay, very happy to be joined on the program today, all the way from beautiful British Columbia, obviously Canada. I'm joined on the line right now by Vern Seabird. Vern, how are you doing? I'm doing great. Good to talk to you, Annie. And likewise, we were talking a little bit off air before the program about our our unique uh, experiences in our respective provinces in regards to uh, COVID-19. So it's very nice to be talking about uh, some wrestling now to get us off that terrible conversation absolutely so we're we're talking today about uh bc's own john tenta so before we talk about him i just want to get into a little bit of uh, your backstory with professional wrestling okay so um when i was young i always wanted to be a wrestler and um i uh wrote articles for the program when I was like 16, so for a long time here in BC, I was writing, you know, articles for the program, and I'd occasionally write photos and, and that for different magazines and that. So that was sort of my thing, I, you know, that gave you know, take photos with a 110 camera. I didn't have any, you know, fancy cameras, and I, I took the picture actually of um, Andre the Giant, Don Leo Jonathan, and Roddy Piper when they faced wow. and had their arms raised. You may have seen that photo. I took that one. And they they worked with um, Buddy Rose and the Bushwhackers, the Sheepherders. So that was a pretty historic match. I took a few pictures over the years and that, you know, just a fan. And, you know, I knew that if I wanted to get into wrestling, I'd have to really work out and get much larger because British Columbia, most of the talent was all in the 200 pounds to like 300 pounds. It was all really big guys. It was a big man territory like Kaniski and Donald Jonathan and George Wells and Dean Ho, Dean Higuchi. It was like a lot of bigger guys. And um, anyway, I worked out and uh, I worked out with Rocky Del Fair for quite a while. And then uh, when the time was right, I, you know, had my first matches. And, and I, what I would do is I'd uh, work sometimes the opening match and then come back and referee the main event. You know, and back then the main event was a lot of heat. So it was a lot different than, you know, a lot of major heat. So, you know, they'd have guys like Bulldog Brown, Buzz uh, Avalanche, Tyler would come through. And, you know, in the early days, of, like when I was there, and I was that kid, I'd seen lots of guys like John Tolis uh, and uh, Wayne Bridges, John Quinn. I think John Quinn retired up here. So there was a little Kenji Shibuya, you know, there was a lot of, you know, memories, you know, growing up when I was a kid watching wrestling. And then eventually facing guys like, you know, guys that I'd grown up watching with like Dean Ho and stuff and different wrestlers so it was sort of cool yeah Very just cool, like, the, getting back to your uh, your earlier comment about heat back then is people don't understand what heat is <laughs> like nowadays they think it's you know oh we, we're supposed to boo this guy so we'll boom a little bit or whatever no that's that's not what heat is at all <laughs> it's a different yeah it's like you know the kind of 
where the referee could be subject to a lot of uh, beatings if <laughs> the wrong people. I, I know when, one time uh, Terry Adonis was wrestling and he was using a, um, a pencil or something and, and jabbing the guy and the people were going nuts. My dad was in the back of the cr- arena and he came up to the ring and started giving me shit. He's got it. He's pointing. He's pointing. <laughs> <laughs> shit. You know, hey, you're fine. You know, and, yeah, back then it's yeah there was there was some serious heat you know and I saw you know it's not like it is now you know you could tell you know it's a it's a different thing you know and back then too the 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 heels and the baby faces would never be seen together and you know it, it was a different era you know when I like into the eighties and that you know and kayfabe was a big thing and then you know you had to be able to handle yourself and and that too you know it was a different era that was going on. Yeah, between the wrestlers and even even the crowd demographics, like growing up here in Winnipeg, when we used to have the AWA come through and other promotions, the the demographic was such was very diverse, right? You would have, you know, grandparents bringing their kids who would then bring their kids. So you would and and the grandparents were the ones you always had to watch out for because they 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 would get into it, and I don't I'm sure that. Some people may be familiar with a rowdy Winnipeg crowd from seeing the Jets or, or the Blue Bombers on television, but there's there's sports rowdy crowds, and then there was wrestling rowdy crowds back then, and that was a sight to see for sure. Yeah, a story I heard about Winnipeg um, crowds, and you can tell me if you've heard it before. I heard one time Al Pomko was wrestling as a Zodiac, and he had a, you know he had a good match, and the crowd was getting crazy, so he's strolling quickly back to the to the um to the dressing room and a fan leaned over the plexiglass in the arena and pulled his mask off (laughs) i haven't heard that one that's but that sounds par for the course at the old arena oh god (laughs) and another one i heard about winnipeg one time there was some lady she was getting all mad at the the villain and not in Winnipeg. She was getting all mad, 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 and madder. And her kid, I guess, was on her lap. And, and what time she got all fat, she threw the kid into the ring. <laughs> she was so mad. That's just, you know, the stories I heard. I heard a story, and I, I couldn't tell you for the life of me what match it was, but there was a, there was an older woman, and I guess it was her grandson used to take her to the matches. But he didn't. He didn't know that, you know, wrestling was a work, right? So, she's into it. She's into it, and she's freaking out because her favorite guy is getting beat down by the heel, and uh, and the grandson ended up trying to jump in the ring, and I think somebody talked him out of it. But oh god, just things that things that we've lost over the years is it's. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. You had to rewatch. I know. I've had some. Had some old ladies do some bad things to me. <laughs> That's all I'll say. <laughs> some of these old ladies, you know. Well, it's funny. You'd see the blue hair to the gray-haired old ladies. Now you're looking at blue and green, but it's it's not old ladies. It's young girls with green and blue hair. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, the... Uh... Yeah, I, I, the fashion and and everything. I guess what what's old is new, if as as it were. Yeah. It's kind of funny. Yeah. So, so, um, in terms of uh, and obviously you are f- 
from BC. Did you grow up in Victoria, if I read correctly? Yeah, yeah I, I grew up in Victoria and then moved to Vancouver and I lived in the uh, Marple area and one of my neighbors was uh, Sandor Kovacs, uh, the promoter of wrestling. And I went to school, oh, wow. to school with his son, Greg. Yeah, and so I think a bit, you know, I knew him, but I, I didn't even go to the matches, I think, till I was like 15 or 16 when I got on writing the program when Kovacs had the promotion. So that's how far back I go, you know. So in terms of, uh, like you said, how you kind of got your start in wrestling, when was your first introduction then to John Tenta? Oh, John Tenta, well, how I remember John, uh, he lived in the Cloverdale, Surrey sort of area, and every almost every Saturday we would wrestle in Cloverdale. And I remember him coming into the building, because he was, he was a you know, really big, big uh, young man, and he'd be at the matches, and I'd see him quite often at the matches. And would that have been before he would have started his sumo career, oh, I guess, then? Yes, 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 yes. Um, then, like, he did amateur wrestling at SFU and that, and then he was uh, friends with Nick Kaniski and that. And, yeah, I remember him as a fan coming in. A story I heard uh, from one of my friends who's a bus driver, um, the kids one day on the bus would get rowdy, and my friend was a bus driver, and, and John came up, if they give you any trouble, let me know. I'll take care of them. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just curious. How much work did he have for All-Star Wrestling? Um, I remember him, but I don't remember him. Like, I was away parts of the time, too. And then he, occasionally he would come back. Like, I was away a lot, most of 86. Most of 86, I was away in uh, Portland Territory. Yeah. And then um, then uh, later I was in Montreal in 87, and then International Wrestling, and then I went to the Maritimes, and then I came back in like maybe September, October of 87. And he and uh, then he was sort of in, you know, he was around a bit, and I remember 87, I think it was, so we, I wrestled a tag, me and my partner, I, Dale Iton, we we wrestled uh, Tenta and Rick Davison one match. Then a, a year or however later, we wrestled John Tenta and the Frog in a tag match. But <laughs> you get a kick out of this. The match was a double coal miner's glove match. <laughs> So we get in the ring. John gets in the ring. As soon as John gets in the ring, he starts bouncing around. The two gloves from the two separate poles start to shake and shake, and then they end up falling oh, down. Oh, no. So the match, <laughs> match even happened. I mean, yeah, yeah. But that, that's the one that sticks out. And, then, yeah, there was, yeah, we had a, a couple then, and then, ooh, 88, 89, I... The Canadian junior heavyweight champion. I was about 210, I would say, and Tenta was a lot heavier. So I was about 210, and uh, I was a Canadian junior heavyweight champion, and I ended up facing Tenta in a singles match in Chilliwack. And he was a Canadian heavyweight champion for the Tomco territory then. So I remember that match. Was that because he, when he originally started, he was a babyface, and then. Uh... 
then he he switched heel. I think he got his manager with was uh, gentleman John Sayers, I believe. Yeah, John Sayers, I remember wrestled um, was his manager when he come in. He was a heel and that. Yeah, yeah I remember. I, yeah, I remember that that era. And I'm um, trying to think all the stuff that sort of happened. He was in and out, and then I remember. Yeah, I, when I talked to him, he wasn't happy with sumo, and then he went went to New Japan wrestling, right? Yeah, it was it was New Japan, and I think he did All Japan as well, if I believe. Oh, okay, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, because uh, you know, I was just in my research, I've just found it so interesting. You know, he does the the year or so of of sumo, didn't care for it, goes you know goes back home, but then goes back to Japan not for sumo but for professional wrestling. It just is interesting that you know he would go back to that country so so soon after his, his poor experience with, with the sumo aspect of it all. Yeah, it, it, it was a different thing. I mean, but he was a very, you know, good amateur, and, you know, he was, you know, so he had a lot of skills, you know. But explain, too, that uh, um, John was saying about how the hierarchy in sumo is really, you know, they, they sort of, they're really, no matter how good you are, when you start, there's a hierarchy of, of in the sumo business, you know what I mean? In terms that he of, didn't really like. yeah, yeah, I guess because uh, I, I was reading some articles about his his sumo career and and between how he was treated, I guess being a foreigner back then was a that was uh it was not looked upon as favorably as it would be today. Yeah, and naturally, I've got friends that that you know, not as big as John, but big guys in Japan, and there's there's a lot of prejudice and this and if you wear a tattoo too like I've got friends and and, he, and you wear the, the tattoo and John I believe had the big tiger or lion I can't remember what yes he had the big, big tiger on yeah. his shoulder and I think so that's part of it too it's a different culture and certain things you know are, are different it's a different world you know yeah because he he had his run there he was undefeated and they wanted him to move up but in order for him to move up he had to yeah. they wanted him to remove the tattoo to which that's you know i could understand his hesitation on that one for sure so getting back or when he was coming back into canada and then i guess it wasn't too much longer after that that he would have uh joined the wwf then correct yeah um believe um he did the, the skit with him and dino bravo and uh and that, that sort of, you know, that angle there where he came down as a big fan. His name was John. Everybody remembers that, right? Yeah. Yeah, when he was picked out of the crowd, uh, obviously out of the crowd you're going to pick the biggest guy. And yeah, there's John Tenta strolls into the ring. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, it was, it was done pretty well, I thought, yeah. And when he was with the WWE, did he spend much time coming back home or, was, or did that kind of take up his whole life then at that point? Yeah, back then the schedule was, bad i see him occasionally in that and that and but it, you know it was a lot more you know well especially you know when if you get a, a good spot i mean they were using him really good and he was you know he was he was um very talented in what they you know because um you sort of figured you know like they brought in guys that were uh sort of in that era they'd bring in like a kamala a king kong Bundy, uh, um, you know, John Studd before that, you know what I mean, have big guys to face Hogan, and this was a new, and then 
um, they'd bring in, you know, the, the monsters, you know. He was a monster sort of to, to come in to, to, to face Hogan. Yeah, because, you know, you're looking at some of the matches he had um, leading up to his his series with Hogan, and he's, you know, he's going through guys, you know, like like Hercules or like Dino Bravo, like we're saying, you know, guys like he beats the warrior, for example, and, and they're really just building him to be that. Cause back then you're, you have your top baby face in the company. You're trying to build people up to take him on. And, and they really put a lot of steam behind getting John Tenta called earthquake, then getting him that steam to really get behind and challenge Hogan. And that those matches were incredible. Yeah, yeah, they did a good job. They knew, you know, but you know, and and, and to, to Hogan's, you know, the way Hogan worked with them, they worked together really good. You know, they worked together really good, and you know, they had uh, good matches. So you know, that's why you know it worked. So as he kind of moves in and around the WWF, he ends up forming the uh, Natural Disasters tag team with uh, with Typhoon. Um, what what would you make of that tag team? Were you able to see them very much? I, I'd see it, and, and well, the thing is, see, we'd be on the road, right? I I was I remember I was probably wrestling on the road back then, and then, uh, but yeah, yeah, he, you know, they were good, big, big team, and they could move. I think they had good matches. I think with IRS and Ted DiBiase, that one of the main guys they worked with. Right? Yeah, that was the big team. Yeah. Yeah, that's because uh, I believe that at that point they had Jimmy Hart as the manager, and he turned on them and joined and joined Erwin uh, R. Scheister and uh, and and DiBiase after that. Yeah, 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 yeah. It was it was done pretty good, you know. I mean, they, um, you know, he was good. You know, both those guys were big and they could move. You know what I mean? So in terms of. Uh, John Tenta and his his kind of career after the WWF. He he spent a little bit of time in CMLL, I believe, and then oh, I yeah, yeah. I, did, I didn't know too much about that, so I didn't know. Yeah, it I was, know he traveled a few, and he worked in England a bit and traveled around a bit. You know, I know that. Yeah, and he he spent some time. He goes back to Japan. He spent some time with with the War Promotion WAR, and then yeah. and then he moves on to WCW. Um, in the time frame between all of that, did he spend much time back at home, or was it, from your understanding, a fact of like, you know, he he's just kind of from the WWF, he boom, he jumps into. No, I his... think he was just on the road, family, you know, and being a father, you know. Um, one of my relatives actually was the one that thinks they gave him a, a judo, a, one of his some tiger. Because one of my relatives um, is quite quite high up in judo, and uh, he gave John, I think, a black belt back in the day, and they called him um, called him something. He told me the name that they um, they um, gave him in um, for his title, what it was. I can't even remember, but it was a, a judo title that he got. You know, I think it was T T O S H I M I. Tumitsu and and um, heavily mountain harp and he, he was like um, Vic Hargett was a, a relative of mine and gave him his, one of his uh, main belts he 
got in judo okay. years ago. So that was something I just found out years later. Yeah. And then I know that you were probably on the road as well during the, uh, you know, 96, 97, 98 era when he would have been in WCW. Yeah, thing, like, I mean, he had the, um, the, the, the run 89 to 91 with WWF. And, you know, he, that was his, his, his good run with Hogan was like 89 to 91. I'm trying to think of the year All-Star closed down, if it was in that. It was on its last leg, you know what I mean, towards that time. And maybe been doing some other work or something, but I remember that. And then uh, John uh, told me that uh, the guy that he really liked working with and he had a lot of respect for was uh, Jake the Snake Roberts. And oh, really? They, they did, yeah. He, he thought, you know, as, as a in-the-ring professional, he thought a lot of Jake Roberts. He thought very highly of him. He thought he was very good. And Jake's very smart in the ring, you know. He's really good. And then, like, um, 81, 82, or sorry, 91, 92, like, was when he was in the tag team. And then I think he was gone by about 94 sometime. I think he was gone, right? Yeah, I, I believe. he was pretty much gone. And he, then, uh, then later in 94, he was, like, with WCW. But, he, like, he was, like, the shark, right? Yeah, they had him and, as uh, the shark and, or an avalanche as well. He was doing the avalanche thing. Yeah, yeah, it's a different thing. And, uh... Um, it's very talented. It's unfortunate that, that WCW, they sometimes, I mean, in all promotions, they, they don't always have a, a spot or don't know what to do with. I mean, the shark thing, who knows? In, in 2021, maybe the shark thing would get over bigger yeah. than an earthquake, right? <laughs> you know, who knows, right? Sharks, you know, come out to the baby shark music. Yeah, no kidding. <laughs> well, just in terms of even just his look, you don't see anybody like that anymore. No, it's a lot of cookie cutter guys. I mean, they don't see any, like, I mean, yeah, you don't see any, um, there's a lot of cookie cutter. That's why I thought the one guy that, uh, oh, I'm trying to think here. The guy that was with Mandy, what's his name in WWF? Um, the stocky guy. Oh, Otis? Otis, yeah, I thought Otis was unique and he had a different gimmick and I could see him getting sympathy and, you know, I don't, I think he'd be a great, good guy, you know what I mean? Yeah. Otis, they, there was potential there, but sometimes they cut the angles and the storyline, I mean, even managing the tag team, the breakers, and they were sort of a bit different and that's the thing, people like to look at something that looks something different, they don't want to see the average Joe on the street or the average guy they can see at there's Jim, they want to see somebody that, that's larger than life or that's different or, you know what I mean, right? It's such a weird thing. And, and yeah, like to your point, very cookie cutter where, and, you know, I'm not trying to knock the, the talent that there is today, but, you know, when, when I look at who's, you know, wrestling in the main events or whatever, and I know that I'm, and I'm not a big guy myself, I'm 5'10 and, and 170 pounds, right? I'm, but yeah. if I, you know, I'm looking at the guys on the TV, and I'm like, hmm, well, this is not what I used to watch by any far stretch of the imagination. And to me, a guy like John Tenta, although he stood out very well in his era, good God, could just imagine somebody like that in today's era would be, people wouldn't know what to do with themselves. 
Yeah, but things things change too, right? It's just like um, food changes, different things. You know what I mean? I mean, back in the day, there'd be steak houses all over, and even now, you know how you look at a a big grocery store. They used to have like twelve people working in a meat department. Yeah. Now you look, I mean, all of the things. It was like there used to be a, a guy in there for eight hours doing, making sausage, another guy cutting fish up. There used to be, you know, guys wrapping hamburger, wrapping chicken. Wrap, I mean, it, it's changed, you know, the, the grocery store business and are people not eating as much meat? Are they, what are they? Are they all, you know, the, the things that, the taste for entertainment changes as well as the taste for food changes. Yeah, that's true for sure. In terms of uh, when is health sorted to to become an issue did was that the factor in him leaving wrestling or, or was it something where he finished up with wrestling and then his health started it could have been you know a combination of everything you know maybe wanting to you know spend time with the family and you know it's a, it takes a toll on you you know what i mean and to, to be uh, you know what i mean he had a good run i mean had a couple good runs and 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 Japan and different places, right? Maybe figure his time. I sort of figure, like, you know, at certain certain time, it's you know, and as you get bigger, it's got to be harder on the body too. Oh right? God, yeah. I mean, I know, you know, seeing his knees and stuff and that. I mean, it, it must have taken a toll, you know. So, in terms of uh, when his health was starting to take a turn, did you have many interactions with him at that point? Uh, not at the the end end but in the early um we had him i'd see him at the card shows i know he like collected basketball cards too and he when shaquille o'neal you know was coming on he was buying shaquille o'neal cards and everybody would say oh yeah shaquille o'neal and, you know because he was a big guy and i guess Shaq just was involved in wrestling just recently too eh? yeah that's right he did this he did a couple of shows there with AEW, i believe yeah he did actually i thought Shaq did really well. I was quite impressed. He did really good, you know. Considering, you know, what they did with him, you know, they made it last. You know what I mean? I thought that years ago, what I understand, they wanted to do something with Shaq and the big show. That could probably still end up happening one day, you know. Yeah, I could see that. Done well. Or if you do it properly, yeah. Yeah, yeah have Shaq as the heel and the, the big show as the baby face. And, you know, hell, you know, throw water on someone that it. Oh, that's like putting gasoline <laughs> on a fire. That's throwing that glass of water. Oh, you can't get a bigger way to set off a feud, you know. Yeah. <laughs> no, oh. no, not the water. The dreaded, yeah, the half half glass of water in the face. Oh God. Yeah. Yeah, they don't. They certainly don't do it like they used to. That's for sure. No, no, no. So, uh, and. In terms of uh, in terms of John Tenta and, and obviously the way he passed away was very tragic with with bladder cancer. Uh, what was kind of his legacy in in the Surrey area and then in the in the Greater British Columbia area as well? Well, I mean, I know like if I go to certain areas of Surrey and that and that, I get recognized quite often in Surrey and Cloverdale. For John, it must have been everywhere because <laughs> he's he's larger than life. So I mean. In Surrey and that, and I think later he, he ended up moving to Florida and that. But uh, and Surrey, you know, everybody's saying, "Oh, John Tenta from Surrey," and you know, Cloverdale. His parents are 
still in, in the area as far as I know. And, uh, yeah, he was well-loved, you know, that's for sure. I, I almost can't imagine, you know, people not looking back fondly on, you know, kind of his his life story and just what he what he went not went through but you know what i mean like like what he meant to that community i mean it's not often you know it's funny through the course of this program where i I, i'm learning so much about individuals that seemingly come out of nowhere in canada and then they end up being big stars you know in in america or overseas or whatever and john tenta is certainly no different and i mean it's it just it impresses me every time to see that you know the amount of of talent that comes out of Canada and still to this day comes out of Canada that's oh, able absolutely. to able to break through in, in the international markets like it's one thing to be a a big star where you live a totally different thing to be a big star internationally where the people that you you know grew up with and and all that kind of thinking you know point to you on on TV or whatever, go, hey, I knew him or whatever. Like, to me, yeah, it's, yeah, it's so that's, neat. That's true. That's true. Yeah, he's done really well. And, uh, I mean, well, there's a couple. There's um, El Fantasmo, who's from here. He's in Impact right now. Yeah, that's right. Actually, I think he just and, worked tonight. Uh, also, uh, um, those, I'm just naming, and, of course, the Bollywood boys are from here. Yes. Um, the the Sierra Brothers, the Bollywood boys, they're on... Uh, NXT now, and then um, 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 Kyle O'Reilly, he's uh, from Surrey, actually, Delta. Must be something in the water there. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's true. And, uh, but, I mean, that, there's a lot of sacrifice, you know what I mean, to get to that next level. It's one thing, you know, to do it and basically live out of a suitcase and live away, you know what I mean, it's, a, a grind. You I mean even locally and in the, you know in the states and different places doing it. It's you know and it's uh, the kind of thing. And then you know the, most of the guys out of the Vancouver you know area like myself have done pretty good in wrestling. You know, so, naturally everything is kind of at a standstill with with COVID restrictions. But in in today's wrestling environment in Vancouver, are there places still that uh that people can go for training there yeah yeah there's some places that there's some pla- i i don't know all the logistics of exactly what's happening with the covid and who's you know training or whatever i know um there's there is some training going on and if people want to look into it further there is some training i don't know what the what exactly but the way i look at it too basically who knows, a year or two out of their career are gone because there isn't much happening, really, unless it's just, I mean, it's different. And even with the wrestling that's on TV now, with, with little or no crowd, I mean, you know, it, it's a different story. I mean, if you take a, a power slam or a suplex and that, the crowd can get you in it, but taking a bump, like that, with no crowd. It would, it would hurt to me. It would hurt a lot more. <laughs> oh no, you know, any big pump like you know, or suplex off the top within an empty warehouse. Holy cow! <laughs> you know, it's a difference when you're building it up and your your adrenaline's going. You know, it's just like you know, like um, one time I I cut my back open. It was bleeding and that, and then uh, crowd was going and okay and then fine and. Then, 
match is over, I'm walking by the mirror and I see the blood on my back and scratches. I'm like, ow! Oh, <laughs> <laughs> you're seeing it right there. It's where, you know, it's, it, it hurts more. <laughs> but I mean, to do it without a crowd, I mean, to these guys, I take my hat off to be able to do the stuff they do with no crowd. I tell you, and, 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 you know, for the guys to, to win a belt or lose a championship without a, a live crowd to respond, it's, really something you know that's they're, they're missing you know and also the fans it's still not the same you know no, matter what you yell at your t- no matter what you yell at your tv and <laughs> those, players, those players on the winnipeg jets they're not going to skate any faster for you i can't don't tell them you can yell all you want andy those people those players no matter what even if you know their name they're not going to respond the, the the biggest downside for the Winnipeg Jets fans is there's not 15,000 people in the MTS Center going, shoot, every time somebody's got the puck out. But, but I wonder, the thing I really wonder about the people in Winnipeg, that, that I'm really wondering, are they really wearing their white shorts and shirts? You know? For the whiteout? Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, when, it, when it's the playoffs here... It even in in the workplaces, right? It's people are wearing white. Yeah, when they, what you see on TV is a fraction of what it actually is. It's it's pretty wow. incredible, actually. Wow, wow. Well, before I let you go, is there is there uh, any social media that people can follow you if they want to get in touch with you? Um, um, if they look up my name um, on Facebook, I'm pretty easy to find. Um. Um, yeah, they can reach me, you know, any messages they want to send me. It's um, Vern Siebert, or else they can find Vicious Vern if they know how to spell Vicious. <laughs> I've got <laughs> Facebook accounts. Throw it in the Google and, machine, uh, kids. Okay, well, good talking to you. We'll hopefully do it again someday and talk about some other Canadian uh, wrestling. Now, as we look to wind up today's program, we unfortunately have to talk about the end of John Tenda's life. Now, John Tenta retired in rest, or from wrestling in 2004. Uh, he revealed at that time that he had developed bladder cancer and was told that, unfortunately, he was given a 20% chance to live. Now, that was assuming that he continued with his chemotherapy treatments. Now, during an interview on November 18th of 2005 with WrestleCrap Radio, uh, John unfortunately announced that a recent radiation dosage did not go as planned and had no effect on the tumor. He also announced that tumor that multiple tumors had spread to his lungs. Unfortunately, on June 7th, 2006, uh, we lost John Tenta to bladder cancer at the young age of 42. Now, this one hits home for me because I'm only 30, well, I'll be 36 this month in June. Uh, so we share the same birth month of June, unfortunately. June is also the month that he had passed away. And it hits home for me because I have two young children. And, uh, man, 42 is so young. And I think maybe that's why a lot of the mainstream wrestling audience doesn't maybe remember Earthquake as fondly as others they have remembered over the years. And maybe that is in part to the fact that he's been gone now at this point essentially 25 years. Um, another aspect of it could be, like I mentioned previously, that he never was one to come out and do the quote-unquote shoot interviews 
or spill the beans about what happened in professional wrestling. Often you find guys who are more willing to, let's say, be negative in social outings, such as shoot interviews, tend to be some of the most um, notarized individuals. Unfortunately, in professional wrestling, negativity kind of, uh, that's kind of the draw power for a lot of people and I, I don't understand why that is and I really hope that that changes in the future uh, unfortunately we see it time and time again you know programs people whatever you want to say who uh, are very negative towards other people very negative to certain subject matters very negative to uh aspects of professional wrestling those are the ones who get amplified and i'm not talking about just people in the profession of professional wrestling i'm talking about uh the periphery media as well or periphery media as well and it's quite unfortunate because that just further reinforces the stigma that professional wrestling has as a very you know <laughs> basement dwelling male a gatekeeping kind of fan base which it's not it was never intended to be that unfortunately that's where we kind of find ourselves in today's climate and environment now i hope programs like this and and other programs that kind of look at the uh history and things of that nature of professional wrestling kind of, of carve out some of that cancer if you will and uh and we can kind of move forward with this thing so Unfortunately, like I said, we lost John Tenta way, way too young at 42 years old. Uh, but his contributions to professional wrestling are still felt today. And uh, in my opinion, will be felt for a long time. And I hope this program goes a long way towards making sure that that remains a reality. So as we head to the finish of today's program, I just wanted to make mention of a few things. Uh, once again... I just wanted to thank uh, Greg Oliver and the team over at SlamWrestling.net for making their interview with John Tenta available for me to quote heavily for this program. I also want to thank Conrad Thompson and Bruce Pritchard from the Something to Wrestle With program. Uh, Conrad Thompson, especially, he was the one we had a, or who I reached out to. We had a conversation, and he graciously allowed me to use the clips from Something to Wrestle that you heard earlier on in this program. I also want to make mention that I heavily used uh, NorthAmericanSumo.com, an article written on John Tenta uh, for research in this program. Again, it's very hard to do research, first off, on somebody who had a career, you know, 30 plus years ago, and I'm talking now specifically about his uh, sumo career. It's hard to get a lot of that information because a lot of it unfortunately is lost to the sands of time something that keeps being a reoccurring theme on this program unfortunately but that's why people like myself uh people like the historians in wrestling and, and beyond need to kind of make our mark and and save and preserve a lot of this history because if we don't if we don't talk about it, if we're not saving it, if we're not preserving it, then it will get lost in the sense of time. And, and, you know, in 15, 20 years, maybe nobody even knows that John Tenta had a sumo wrestling career and was as successful as he was. So not to give myself a pat on the back, it's more to 
kind of highlight the need for the historical aspect of professional wrestling and his history, you know, scholars and people who preserve it in general. Um, it needs to be done because if, if it's not getting done, it's going to get lost. And, and as we've all seen, you know, the old saying goes, uh, those who don't learn from their history are doomed to repeat it. So I just wanted to leave everybody with that thought. I know I'm kind of waxing poetic a little bit here, but uh, it's it's something that I really feel the need to discuss every episode, and I'm going to keep uh, I'm going to keep pursuing that avenue, if you will. Also, want to make mention you can email me sixsidepod at gmail.com if you have any comments towards this show. You can find me on Twitter at six underscore podcast. You can find the aforementioned Facebook group on Facebook. Use that wonderful search bar. Search Grappling with Canada. It'll come up. Uh, please join the page as well. Uh, the Facebook Grappling with Canada group and page are both on there. You can find them. Uh, please join them. Please pass it along to your friends and family. As well, youtube.com slash C slash Six Sided Podcast is the YouTube platform where you can find uh, full versions of this show as well. I wanted to make mention as well, yes, the t-shirts are still getting worked on. And once again, uh, when these shirts come out, and a couple of them are spoken for already, there's going to be a limited run of 50 t-shirts. That's it, 5-0. Once they're gone, they're gone. And a portion of the proceeds will be being donated to the Children's Hospital here in Winnipeg, Manitoba, Canada. So when those are available and I have more information than I will let everybody know on the aforementioned platforms. Uh, you can also go on uh, the interwebs, if you will, tinyurl.com slash grapplingwithcanada. There you'll find links to a lot of the authors' books who have been on the program. Uh, use those Amazon links. It doesn't add anything to your purchase price, but I do get a very small kickback uh, that goes towards production costs in, associated with the show. As well, there is an Amazon 30-day free Prime trial. Uh, once again, it doesn't add anything to your Prime uh, purchasing price, if you will, uh, but it does provide a small kickback to the show. So tinyurl.com slash grapplingwithcanada. And as well, you can buy me a beer over at buymeacoffee.com slash grappling. Also, you can find the links for that on uh, Twitter as well as the uh, social media outlets and on Instagram as well. Instagram, use that wonderful search bar, Grappling with Canada. Find us there. Uh, like the page, follow the page, all that fun stuff. Um, again, this program has experienced exponential growth over the last uh, couple of months. A lot of that has to do with the subject matter. I know the Gene Kaniski episode in particular was a big, big hit. Uh, the Billy Two Rivers episode was a big hit as well. A lot of people checked that out. A lot of people for the first time as well checked that out. So thank you all for that. Uh, do me a favor. You're probably on your phone right now. You're probably using your phone to listen to this program. Or conversely, you're probably on your computer listening to this program, which means that you are very close to your social media outlets or your text message outlets. So... Do me a favor, text your friends, tweet your friends, Facebook your friends, you listen to Grappling with Canada, you listen to the Taxman, that you enjoyed the John Tenta earthquake episode, 
And as well, if you go ahead and hit a five-star review and rating on any applicable platform, especially on iTunes, it would go a long way to helping myself out and helping the discovery of the program. So for all of that, for my guest today, Vern Siebert, uh, for all of, like I said, the for all of the uh, sources that I was able to use for today's episode, I will leave you as I usually do. But before that... And this is something that's a little bit hard to talk about, but it does bear mentioning considering that we had just previously to this tackled the, or not tackled, that's a very poor choice of words, but did the spotlight on Billy Two Rivers. And that is in regards to, and that was in regards to the remains of the 215 children that were found buried uh, outside of a Kamloops Indian residential school in Canada. I had talked about it in last month's episode that Canada has had and unfortunately continues to have a very sordid past and unfortunately still sordid present with our indigenous peoples. And this discovery was shocking to say the least. Uh, this school is not something that existed in the 17 or 1800s. This is a school that was running in the 60s up until the uh, 70s, it would appear. And uh, yeah, this is, uh, it's not good. And unfortunately, I would not be surprised if there are other grave sites like this in Canada that have yet to be uncovered and discovered. And I really feel for all of the indigenous community because it's legitimately gut punch after gut punch after gut punch for the indigenous peoples here in Canada, whether it's discoveries like this, uh, further discrimination from our uh, health systems, to say it politely, further discrimination in regards to clean water access on reserves, which is such a goddamn embarrassment. It, I don't use language on this show, and I'm not going to start now, but I think you guys understand a little bit of where I come from. So, once again, I want to send my condolences to those families. These were children innocent children taken from their families, children who never were able to grow up, who were never able to contribute to their indigenous and Canadian society. And, uh, man, it's horrible, horrible to even think. And, uh, I feel awful for the families who, who these children were taken from and, uh, may they all rest in peace and, and hopefully their spirits can find closure and their families uh, can find closure as well. And I, I'm sorry to end this episode on a downer, but you know it is something that needs to be discussed, and there needs to be action, and there needs to be accountability taken. And uh, although this program is not necessarily meant for that, um, it's programs like this, and people like myself, and like you, the listener at home, who are going to be the ones who change this kind of... Uh, this kind of course of, of not only Canada, I know that we have a very large international listening audience, but 
people like us are going to be the ones who who kind of change the course of essentially uh, genocides, wrongdoings, and uh, and issues and instances like this in our respective countries. So, <sighs> once again, I don't mean to end the show on a downer, but that is something that I wanted to at least touch on and I highly encourage everybody to read further on in depth about the residential school system and about this atrocity that was that was unearthed this month with that being said give your loved ones a hug and a squeeze if you are living with them if you are continuing to be distanced by this pandemic as we are here in Manitoba uh, there is very strict uh, stay home orders in effect Skype your friends, call your family, tell them you love them, send that text message, send that email. You never know somebody who could be hurting. Maybe that's the one pick-me-up that they need. And uh, and we should all go out of our way to, uh, to be that light in somebody else's life. So, once again, for myself, the tax man, for my wonderful guest, Vern, on this show, and to all of you, I will leave you as I usually do. Take care of yourselves and each other. Good night, everyone.